This is Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast. And I'm Penelope Riseborough here today with Falami Harris. Falami is currently leading the Dreams Innovation Challenge project at JSI. And welcome. Good to be here, Penelope. Thank you. I know that the DREAMS project is focused on building the agency of girls so they can protect themselves from HIV and other things. Why do you think that now is the time for an initiative like DREAMS? I don't want to say the time has passed. It has been now for a very long time. So that it happens in this moment is a good thing. We're very happy to see that girls are getting the attention they need. Interestingly, even for staff, we have a very hard time convincing our audiences, including staff, that girls deserve unique, focused attention. Why? The feeling is, what about the boys? Are you leaving the boys behind? Why don't they have access to these opportunities as well? So a challenge is trying to explain that normal means advantages for males at whatever age, and that it is not a bad idea to focus some very unique resources and attention to traditionally, historically disadvantaged groups. And in this case, girls. Right. I think we're beginning to change mindsets to the extent that even the service providers have difficulty focusing on girls legitimately. We're seeing echoes of oppression in not only the girls that we're trying to reach, but in the very people who want to help them. We are guilty about helping girls just for the sake of helping girls. We have to help boys in order to justify the attention we give to girls. Isn't that something? Yeah. So changing the mindset of service providers, as well as, I assume, the communities, communities, families themselves. Yes. In a way, this is a parallel to what we're going through here in America. We're addressing issues of historical racism and disadvantagement, calls into question Are you abandoning white people? Are you forgetting about their interests? This is the same kind of reaction we have with girls. So it is an uphill battle to the point where we're finding that we almost have to relax a little bit our exclusive focus on girls Mm -hmm. because it is seen as anatema to the interest of boys and not that we can advance both. Interesting. Mm. World Education, JSI's partner organization, implemented a project called the Ambassador's Girls Scholarship Program in 13 countries, Mm. and by the end, they were including boys as well. So they had the same issue five years ago when that project was going on. Yeah. And it's not that boys should not be attended to, but we're saying that in order to redress a historical wrong, it is okay to set aside some special resources for those people who have been traditionally left out. Yeah, absolutely. Difficult message to communicate, although it seems so simple. Right. And so how are you going about trying to communicate that and change those deep historical and cultural (laughs) um, approaches? 
I use whatever analogies I can. Okay. So for staff, it's important that they understand it so that they're not defensive mm -hmm. or feeling guilty, communicating guilt. And it happens for a lot of them. I use the analogy of independence because in Africa, people can relate to that. And so I talk about differential trade preferences. I talk about differential treatment around development issues because as ex-colonials, they were excluded from a lot of these advantages. And so sometimes they're set asides to help a particular country advance. Do you say, well, what about the US? Or what about Europe? I try to use that analogy. And I use the analogy of race very often. I use affirmative action, and I try to talk about it in terms of affirmative action for girls. Doesn't always help Penelope, but... But you feel like you're making inroads. Yes, I feel we're making inroads, and I know for the girls themselves, we are making inroads. Excellent. You should see them. The pride you can definitely see empowerment without even having a real good definition of empowerment that everybody buys into. When you see these girls, you know they're empowered. What you want is that to be lasting beyond a feel-good experience mm -hmm. to the kinds of institutional changes that they need to be truly empowered. They feel empowered. What is DREAMS doing to try to sustain that? We're trying to educate the communities and the families mm -hmm. in the first place so that they can begin to see equality as norm. Mm -hmm. We're trying to change the institutions themselves in very small ways. There are not a lot of grantees that are attacking institutional biases directly, but it is that sort of underlying understanding that schools have to have policies that are forgiving of girls who become pregnant giving them a second chance, mm -hmm. that schools have to be aware of the need for policies around sexual harassment between teachers and students. So we're beginning to do some of this, but it's kind of early yet to say, well, we have had such and such a school change their policy about admitting or readmitting girls who dropped out because of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But we are seeing it happen. Mm -hmm. well, that's mm -hmm. good. And um, you mentioned the, the NGO grantees that you're working with. My understanding is that you're doing capacity building with them? Yes, we are doing some capacity building, although I have to tell you that the grantees are fantastic. Yeah? They're fantastic. It may be that they're not familiar with the USG regulations. They may not be compliant around some of the um, administrative regulations that we are bound to observe. And so we're doing capacity building there big time, mm -hmm. building institutional systems so that they're able to manage USG awards and they're able to manage awards the size that they have. Uh, we are also doing technical capacity building. So for example, we had some training on um, integrating gender equity promotion in your programs because believe it or not, Many people have divorced HIV prevention and gender equity from the Dreams Innovation Challenge. They put in applications, they talk about 
service to girls, mm -hmm. but they a lot of them are not really seasoned in this area. So gender analysis, gendered programming that can be measured and strengthened are outside the realm for many, not all, but for many. You take an agricultural program that's providing seeds and opportunities for girls. They're seeing that as the advantage. They're not looking at why is it that girls or women don't profit from farming. They're not looking at what are the barriers to a woman farmer in marketing her crops. So we're introducing those kinds of sensitivities mm -hmm. so that it can go beyond the funding. It can begin to open their minds to equality in some new and lasting ways, I think. So have you developed a curriculum or several different curricula for capacity building in, in those areas? Yes, we do have a gender equity promotion curricula that was developed. And of course, we're pulling from existing knowledge. Mm -hmm. We're not creating everything from new. Uh, we've also developed or amended existing curricula on social and behavior change communication. A large part of it um, looking at advocacy mm -hmm. and looking at gender analysis as well. Mm -hmm. When we do our situation analysis, we always take a gender lens to it. And for many, that's not sort of the way they're used to looking at things. Now we do have routine curricula for mm, using a timesheet, for <laughs> signatorial authority. Administrative things. Yes, yeah. for ensuring that they are compliant. Yeah. Because if they're not compliant, we cannot get into the other issues that we need to get right. into. Right, right. So first year was meeting those kinds of um, expectations and obligations. Mm -hmm. Now we're beginning to take apart programs, critique it, analyze it, fill in the gaps that will make it truly gender transformative, because that's what we're looking for. So focus on the management of the organization, the local partner first, and then get into the technical focus. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So how did you get started, Falami, in <laughs> this area of work? You've been doing international development for a long time, I think. Yes, over 30 years. Okay. And uh, I started looking at sexual and reproductive health. I started out looking at the cultural inhibitors for healthy sexuality. and Internationally or here in the U.S.? Internationally. Okay. My first was in Zambia. But how did you get interested in that? I mean, 30 years ago, not a lot mm -hmm. of people were talking about international development, really. How did you find out it was a thing? Well, I come from Jamaica. Oh, so you do? I come okay. from the other side. Ah. And I grew up with Peace Corps volunteers and the English equivalent. The Scots used to come down as teachers. Okay. And uh, so I knew that there were people who were interested in working on the better good from other countries. But they never looked like me. They were always from some colonial outpost. Mm -hmm. And so I always wondered, well, what could I bring to this that they cannot see? So from a girl, I was interested in this. And I've kept that interest all through. And girls were my central focus. I come from a society where we say, my mother who fathered me. Because in many post-slavery societies in the Caribbean, the women are the uh, 
the matriarchs, the breadwinners, they are the backbone of the family. Mm -hmm. And so I always had uh, my own misgivings about the absence of men in economic and familial ways in in, in our lives. Hmm. So, You grew up in Jamaica. Mm. When did you come to the States? I came to the States in 1970 as a pregnant teenager. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, my eyes were open to the availability of family planning and abortion. This is 1970 when you rode the subways in New York, which was my first port of call, there were Planned Parenthood ads. And you know I worked for Planned Parenthood for a while. You did? Yes, I did. And this was in high school or university? I had just finished high school. I was 15, going on 16. Found myself pregnant, was raped, and knew in my heart I would not carry this child. And I knew also that Jamaica would not be the place for me. I would have had to have the child in Mm -hmm. Jamaica. Mm -hmm. It was just a series of um, fortunate circumstances that had me coincide with my family's migration to New York. But my eyes were very open and um, I, on my own, not yet 16, navigated my way to Planned Parenthood. And I tell you, that is not something that in 1970 a Caribbean girl would ever have imagined. Yeah, I imagine not. Yeah. And then you ended up volunteering or working with them? I worked with them. I worked with with them on adolescent health and um, sexual and reproductive health, Uh, but not before interning at a hospital in Poughkeepsie with the adolescent pregnancy unit. So it, it has been close to my heart and something that I've carried with me professionally all these years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, where did you go to university? I went to the University of Michigan okay. and then I f- did my, finished my graduate work at Columbia. But I also and started... And that was a master's in public health? Master's in public health. Okay. Uh-huh. Population and family health. All right. Mm-hmm. And then Zambia, you said? And then Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanders Center. Ah, I became deputy director, and then in New York. In New York. Okay. Mm -hmm. This was at the height of the Reagan global gag rule. Mm. The metering of funds. That's right. I remember it well. But had the privilege of escorting senators, Republican senators, through Africa, to show them the impact of the loss of these funds for women's health in general. So it's, yeah. So how do you feel that your personal history from 25, 30 years ago is influencing how you're looking at this work being done through the Dreams Project now? It's, it's like opening the doors to really address it front on, Mm -hmm. not hiding behind something but to be able to say with U.S. support that this has got to change and here are some resources to help change it. So it's opened up opportunities to me that I would normally have had to kind of access by the back door. Mm -hmm. This is a front door entry. 
I can where and where where and when I enter right. and be proud to enter. Oh, that's great. And it comes back to what you said at the beginning of the interview where you talked about it's been a, an issue out there for so long, but maybe now. And actually both sides, Penelope, you know, mm -hmm. we said that this has allowed us to um, look at the ways in which we can improve girls' health and reproductive health in particular, looking at an outside, outside strategies, for example, to this particular problem. Mm -hmm. But being on the continent also allowed me to see how we can facilitate this change using traditional cultural avenues. And for me, the challenge is marrying the two. Right. You know, I think I went at a period when the initiation of girls in the, in the this was the 90s now in Zambia, I still could see what an initiation right looked like for girls. And open... And, and was that FGM or what no, was that? No, not FGM. Just more a more traditional setting for teaching sexuality oh, okay. and sexual health. Okay. Which is far more explicit than any Western intervention I have seen, and I think that's where SRH belonged. However, in our desire to help and in the limitations that we have as externals, we have denigrated traditional cultural systems to the point where they've become totally discredited and therefore cannot be used, whereas they were they constituted an organized system for educating young people about sexual behavior right. and sexual health. And the same thing for circumcision. I mean, male, when we look at male circumcision, mm -hmm. we have totally discredited the traditional circumcisers mm. so that now we have medical models mm. and we are so proud of it that we call it voluntary medical. medical. But yes. Well, what it does is it, it does create tensions, but it also ignores people within that society who did more than just cut off foreskins. Right. And so me, if I had more time in this, it would be my goal to bring the two together in a more holistic way. Interesting. I think I'm out of time though. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. So are there examples where you see that culture, long-standing culture, still able to influence things? You made it sound like it's all been pushed aside for Western less values so, and approaches. Less so now because we define development in terms of Western values yeah, and Western ideals. Mm. So, you know, who in their right mind in 2017 is going to go back to the village and someone who dresses differently and speaks differently different orientation completely and expect to be helped much of uh, the communication that we've entered into we have spent discouraging the legitimacy of these institutions so how do we rebuild them now right yeah what are some of the approaches that you've seen from one NGO in one country that you think have been particularly successful, perhaps that other groups can learn from, given that mm -hmm. cultures are different in different mm -hmm. places. 
Are there approaches that you're seeing with some of the partners that we have that you think are really working? Many. Excellent. Many, many. Um, I visited uh, Aquit, which is uh, an organization that uses internet technologies uh, toward liberating girls in terms of their vision of what can be. And so these young women are also from very disadvantaged backgrounds and they're teaching them how to code and how to use the technology to enhance their economic situation. And I was imp most impressed. The girls had not only mastered coding and could build a website, they also took apart a computer and put it back together in front of me to show that they also understood the hardware part of it. And they were earning, they were beginning to earn income that would allow them to earn more than they would have earned for a month doing whatever was available to them. Uh, I think that that is a good marriage of where we are today with technology and with the resources that are available. What we need to do is to take it a little bit step further, but I think those organizations will do so as well. And what country is that in? That is in Kenya. In Kenya. Yes. So a country like Kenya, I imagine, has a thriving tech... Uh, they do in the urban centers. In the urban centers. In the rural areas, you Not still so are contending right. with disruptions in yeah, electricity. Power. Yeah. At the same time, you're also not utilizing solar energy right. to make that more right. viable. You're not utilizing a lot of the um, holistic ways in which development is going right mm -hmm. now in the West. Mm -hmm. We are still stuck on models that are a few years behind. Right. So with solar energy and with some other innovations in an ecologically balanced system, the girls could go even further. Right. And are you, or the NGO that you're partnering with, are they, the girls are getting these skills and then do they also focus on like networking skills or how do you package yourself and, and put together a CV and go and do a job interview and are they practicing those sorts of things and building those kinds of skills which yes. are so essential? Yes, there are several organizations, several grantees that are devoted to building bridges to employment and they're looking at training young women in non-traditional areas, mechanics, masons, um, those traditionally male areas. They are providing them a lot of skills in representing who they are and their potential, building resumes, interviewing well, Excellent. placing them with potential employers. And that's not just, I saw that in East and Southern Africa. Mm -hmm. We have an organization called Touch Roots Africa, for example. They're working with young women and putting them in jobs working with the employers to ensure that they have places to go to. So they're marketing more finished young women and they're doing a good job in placing them as well. I saw it in East Africa in several places as well. And Aquit is, an, is one such organization that's doing that. What we want to do when we talk about gender analysis is that we also want you to then look, are they getting equal pay for equal work? Of course. 
are they being trained on how to resist sexual harassment on the job? Are the labor laws fair in their treatment of young women outside of wages? So are you also trying to look at policy and advocacy work in in various countries or working with the NGOs to do that, I suppose it would be? A little bit. Not a lot, no. I'd, I'd say right now our focus is on getting it right, getting the project design right at a very basic level mm-hmm. before you start right. <laughs> creating Do problems right. down the road. <laughs> okay. So we're looking at the basic ingredients, and we're looking at the gaps, and if we had another year, we could go into looking at policy reform that's needed mm-hmm. to make sure that the changes are sustained. But now we just raise those issues for them to think about as we focus on what they're doing on a day-to-day. What do you think will be the biggest challenge? Sustainability. Sustainability of? Not financial sustainability. That's a big part of it. But it's not just the financial sustainability. It's planting a seed that will take hold around the value of females the value of girls, Mm -hmm. that is going to take a little while. It may be sexy to talk about it, but the value system is still one that would just as easily sacrifice a girl in the interest of a boy. So we want to make sure that people understand the value of women and girls and that they buy into it intrinsically. That's not there yet. I'm not sure it's there anywhere yet. Oh, yeah. It's coming, but it's not there yet. It's not there yet. Hashtag me too. <laughs> yes. Yes. What's something in your life that you're most proud of that you've done? <laughs> and it doesn't have to be related to dreams, of course. No. You know, here it is. I am a feminist, but I'm most proud of my mothering. Lovely. <laughs> so of tell my me about own, your children. Of my own biological children and, and of all the children that I've gathered throughout my life. Um, I've got uh, three children of my own, um, two boys and a girl, and they're all nicely centered human beings. I, I like them. I think they're fun, they're decent, and I think the values that they expose are the kinds of values that you would hope this generation and others to come would hold dear. My daughter is uh, a prosecutor with New York State (laughs) District Attorney. Wow. She's got three children and um, she does an admirable job professionally and at home. Um, I've got sons who are sensitive to equality and I like that. So I'm I'm very I'm very pleased with how I've done that way. That's great. <laughs> Do you feel like there's been one or maybe two transformative moments in your life that set you on this amazing direction of focusing on reproductive rights and girls yes. and women's I think health my and... rape at 15 definitely it was yeah. transformative yeah. and I think my um, professional um, success Um, in Africa, in that context, has been transformative as well. Um, It's not just that it was success, it 
my ability to navigate those new cultural realms and to find sense and logic and respect in what I saw was transformative as well. And it influences how I design programs and how I see programs. Right. And how amazing that you could take such an awful thing happening to you and turn it into something that set your life in such a positive direction. That is, that's kind of amazing. You don't think of it that way, but it, it, it does happen. Yeah, yeah, it creeps up on you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Falami. Well, thank you so much. This thank was a um, wonderful thank pleasure you. getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast.